Our Father, we are so grateful for your mercies, the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for our Savior who went to the cross, willingly laid down his life for us that we might be forgiven. We come again to familiar verses, and may they be new, may they be freshly applied to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke 22, page 881 in the Church Bible. Last Lord's Day, we were looking at the last Lord's Supper and the beginning of the the first institution of the Lord's Supper, the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. Today, we're going to be looking at the chapter and looking at who's at the table. And Luke wants us, more than the other Gospels, to stop and look who's there, who's at dinner. Luke 22, the first six verses, and then we'll jump down to verse 21. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Verse 21. After instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Gospel of Luke parallels Matthew and Mark very similarly in the events of the last week of Christ's life. But Luke is unique because Luke goes on his own way and includes information that are not included in the other Gospels. And so when we see that, we should stop and say, why is he doing this? Why is he including this here? And often it will be because Luke wants us to see people's responses to what Jesus has just done or said. He's unique in showing us people. 
The other Gospels, when they record the institution of the Lord's Supper, then they immediately go to Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, but not Luke. He's, he has a stop here at the table and hears some more of the conversation and how people are responding to Christ. In this chapter, we have, the, first of all, the one disciple's betrayal, and then we also have the other disciple's pride. The one disciple's betrayal Luke tells us of Judas' rejection of Christ. He tells us of Judas' possession by Satan. He tells us of Judas' conspiracy with the clergy. And fourthly, Judas' fulfillment of God's plan. He tells us of Judas' rejection of Christ. You notice that in verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He puts it that way to underscore the privilege that Judas had and the privilege that he was forsaking. He was one of the twelve that had been chosen by Christ to be had been with him these last three years. He was one of the ones that saw the miracles, the healing of the lepers, the raising of the dead. He had heard the gospel preached. He had seen people forgiven of their sins one of the twelve. He was also sent to preach the gospel himself. He was one of the twelve of that small group of the last Passover in history and of the first Lord's Supper. He had been there when the Lord Jesus had washed his feet. Jesus expressing his love for, for all of them in fact, Jesus calls him friend, Matthew 26, 50, one of the twelve. And yet he rejects Christ and who he is. Even when Jesus reveals to him, I know everything that you're doing and planning, Judas. Go ahead, do what you've planned. Still, there's no shame. There's no change of mind. No conscience, he hardens his heart and he proceeds with his plan to betray Christ. One of the twelve. Showing us so often taught in scripture that it's not of ourselves that we believe in Christ. This man, what privileges he had. It's only God's grace that opens our hearts and gives us the new birth to repent and believe what do we have that we've not received? This man walked with Christ for three years. Why is that person that you love and not yet a believer, you don't fall back into thinking, well, because I haven't perfected my argument. Um, I, I need a better book. They need to go through some hardship of life. Then, then, they'll, be, then they'll come to Christ. Look at Judas, one of the twelve. We only believe because God has opened our minds to believe and hearts to come to Christ. Judas' rejection of Christ. Luke records for us Judas' possession by Satan. Verse 3. Of course, the backstory is we've already been told. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve first fell into sin, God had appeared 
and warned and prophesied to Satan that the day would come when Messiah, the seed of the woman, would come, be born, and would crush the head of the serpent. There would be a decisive victory over Satan, and God would again redeem his people. And that became the conflict of the ages. That's the story of the Bible. And you see that so often throughout the Old Testament. It comes down even to a remnant of one. But God will save his people, and he will bring the Messiah, and Christ was born. You come to the New Testament, and that intensity, that conflict even increases. Begins at his birth, Matthew 2, and King Herod had heard that the Savior was to be born, and so he ordered all the babies to be killed in Bethlehem to try to annihilate this Messiah baby. It's Satan who tempts Christ immediately after his baptism, takes him into the wilderness, and there has to undo his credibility and lead him into sin. Satan arouses the people of Nazareth after Christ's first sermon, wanting to throw him over a cliff. Satan controls the weather, how often Christ had to rebuke the weather, but speaking to it as to a muzzled to a dog because he was ordering Satan to be still. Satan arouses the religious leaders, and finally here, The last week, Satan enters Judas, thinking, now I can kill the Lord of glory. And if I can kill the Lord of glory, then God's plan of salvation will be thwarted. I will have humanity in my control and in my kingdom forever, and there will be no hope. The supreme irony of all of this, Satan apparently did look like he was the winner. Christ was betrayed. Christ did go to the cross and suffer and die, and he appears helpless in his death on the cross. But that's only going to be a wound on the heel, not his destruction. But Satan only plays to God's hand, fulfilling God's plan of redemption, and Christ died and was raised, was glorified as the King of Kings. Judas was possessed by Satan. Satan entering into Judas is more similar than dissimilar for all unbelievers. Judas is an unbeliever, so he's already under the control and the blindness of Satan, as are all unbelievers. Satan was his father. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Satan has blinded the minds of all unbelievers, including Jews. There's a similarity here. But there's also something that's very unique, because it's Satan himself that is doing this. Very few people in history have ever been tempted by Satan himself, because Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere present at the same time. Usually when we speak of the spiritual battle that we're facing and we're facing Satan's forces, Ephesians 6, it's not Satan himself. It's Satan's angels and his divisions. Very few people in history have been tempted, certainly possessed, by Satan himself. But Judas was one. The similarity here is that Satan will go after all of the disciples. He's going to tempt them all, 
and they will all fall away from Christ. They will all fall into Satan's temptations, not just Judas. But Judas was not a believer, and he perished in his sins. The other disciples were restored only because they were chosen by the Father, and it was by the prayers and the perseverance of Jesus Christ to restore them. There's no room for pride as we read of Judas. Rather, it should lead us to a great solemnity and humility and gratitude for Christ's perseverance with us. Luke tells us of Judas' rejection. Luke tells us of Judas' possession. He tells us of Judas' conspiracy with the clergy to assassinate Christ, verse 2 and verses 4 through 6. See, Judas knew where they could arrest Jesus without the crowds. And so he brings that information to the religious leaders. Verse 5 says, they were thrilled. That should give you horror. They're about to commit the greatest sin in the history of the world, and they're finding pleasure in it. The darkness of their blindness. So a deal was struck, Matthew 26, 15 tells us it was for 30 pieces of silver. Judas' rejection of Christ, Judas' possession by Satan, Judas' conspiracy with the clergy, and Luke also tells us Judas' fulfillment of God's plan. Look again at verses 21 and 22. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined or decreed, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas fulfills God's plan because God's decree encompasses all things, including Judas's betrayal. Acts 4.24, the church praised God, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Before time, God has decreed all things, including Judas' betrayal. This was set in eternity before time began. Ephesians 1 says God is now just unfolding that plan, all things according to the purpose of his will. A universe without God's decree would be as irrational and appalling as would be an express train traveling on in the darkness without headlight or engineer and with no certainty that the next moment it might not plunge into the abyss, A.J. Gordon. God's decree plans for and includes all things, including Judas. And Jesus, he submits to the Father's decree. The rest of them didn't have a clue that it was Judas. Just because somebody is in the visible church, by all appearances, he was a good man. Never had a clue it was Judas. 
Jesus knows the Father's will. He knows that his death is not a failure. He notice, knows that his death is the very center of God's plan. And so he submits to the Father, knowing that he's going to be raised again on the third day. Jesus didn't allow Judas to betray him until that night. He had to fulfill the plan of Christ. Jesus' full knowledge and submission to the Father's will, giving us an example again that we are to do the same. There is nothing in your life, believer, that is outside of God's plan. Anything that he has ordained for you is because he has decreed it to be that way. It will be for your good. It will be for his glory. It will be for the furtherance of the gospel. We may not see that until glory, if even then, but we are to believe that. You're not to be fretful. You're not to be afraid. You're not to be disquieted and chafing and angry. A quote we've often used, Charles Spurgeon, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most severe circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions. Sovereignty overrules them. That sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their maker over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit on that throne. You see the profound irony in the account, don't you? Satan's plan and God's plan are both working to the same end. Satan doesn't realize what he's doing. But they're both, both converging at Calvary. Satan enters Judas. Satan is using the religious leaders, Jew and Gentile. Satan is using the mob to crucify Christ. He hopes that Christ's death will be Christ's destruction and Satan will win the day and humanity will forever be in his dominion. But God is using the same leaders and Jew and Gentile, he's using the same mob. He's even using Satan himself to have Christ crucified and by his death, Christ will crush the head of Satan, win the day as our victor and bring us as his children into the kingdom of light. Judas fulfills God's plan because God's decree encompasses all things. And Jesus knows that and submits to God's decree. God's decree, and yet Judas's full guilt for his sin of betrayal. You notice the second part of verse 22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. Both are present. Judas is responsible for his sin, and he will face judgment for his sin. And yet God has even ordained his betrayal. Often you'll hear these two questions, similar questions that come from this as you wrestle with this. How can this be? How, first question is, how does God's plan for all things leave us responsible for our sin? And scripture answers yes, People are responsible for your sin. God hates sin. He will judge it in his holy wrath. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. Psalm 5, 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Judgment will come on the ungodly. They will even be judged by their words. 
and their actions, God is absolutely just. Even though God wills all things, including evil, God is not responsible for all that he has ordained to come to pass. As our confession says, the sinfulness therefore proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is he nor can he be the author of or the approver of sin. Watson writes, God has a hand in the action where sin is, but no hand in the sin of the action. God has a hand in the action where sin is, but no hand in the sin of the action. J.C. Ryle, though the wickedness of Judas was foreknown and foreseen and permitted by God in his infinite wisdom, yet Judas was not the less guilty in God's sight. God's foreknowledge does not destroy man's responsibility or justify man in going on still in wickedness under the excuse, he can't help but sinning. Nothing can happen in heaven or on earth without God's knowledge and permission, but sinners are always addressed by God as responsible. So the other question that's often asked, well, how do you reconcile God's decree that includes all things And yet we are responsible for our sin. It couldn't have happened any other way. God had planned it this way. It's a difficult question, but the answer is simple. The answer is, you cannot reconcile them. Nowhere does the Bible reconcile God's decree and providence with man's responsibility and sin and evil. It teaches both are true that we are to believe both, we hold them in tension, and we hold them as a mystery, knowing that we cannot resolve them. The Bible refers to both the sins of men as their sins, and the wicked only do what God has ordained. Proverbs 16:4: the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And God will hold sinners responsible for every sinful word and thought and deed. How much more? Judas in his betrayal of Christ. Do we understand that mystery? How a holy God would include even evil into his plan. We don't understand We're told to believe it, and we do, and we're told to believe that sinners are responsible for their sin, and they are. God doesn't doesn't explain everything necessary for our intellectual satisfaction. He doesn't answer all of our questions. He only explains everything necessary for our obedience. And one of the greatest ways that God receives glory is when his children go through times of evil and testing and trial and you don't know what God is doing. You feel like you've lost your footing and your bearings and yet you still believe. Yet you still pray. Yet you still trust in the Lord knowing that he's too wise to make a mistake. He's too loving to be unkind and knowing that the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, Romans 8.18. That's when God is glorified. The example was our Savior in the garden. 
looking at the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink for our salvation, where he would go to the cross and make full payment for all of our sin, for all of his people, for all time. He was looking at hell in that cup of God's wrath. And he prayed, is there a way for this to pass from me? And where did he end up? What was his final answer? It is enough that it is the Father's will. Matthew 26, 39. You have the one disciple's betrayal. Look at the others around the table, though. You have the other's disciples' pride, verses 24 through 30. Reading again, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Only Luke records that they're having this debate. They've just finished the first Lord's Supper. It's also, Scripture tells us, this is, this is not the first time they've argued about this. This issue has come up several times already. Luke 9 records one of those times. Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand that this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And only Luke records they're having this debate again. At the Last Supper, why does he record it here? It's one of these times he's showing people's response, people's hearts, so that we might ask the question, do I see myself here? Is this a mirror looking at me? Why does he record it here? Is it perhaps to show that all the men at the Last Supper were sinners except for Christ? Even more specifically, all the men at the Last Supper were breaking the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. Judas was coveting silver. All the rest of them were coveting honor and position and authority. They're all breaking the same commandment, the 10th commandment. They're all unworthy of Christ. No one's righteous. No, not one. Why is he recorded here? Is it to show us the patience and the long-suffering of Christ? Remember at the beginning of this meal... John 13 had recorded Jesus got down and took the garment of a servant and washed their feet, including Judas's. And he told them, I'm, I'm leaving you an example for one another. You need to serve one another. It's, Luke 22 is the same dinner. They've already forgotten. And they're arguing who's the greatest. You read the account in Old Testament scripture of Moses, how often he would face the complaining and the murmuring of God's people, and he gave up. But not Christ. We have someone greater than Moses. Such long suffering and patience with sinners.
Maybe Luke is recording it here to show by contrast their petty little argument, who's going to get the first seat. In contrast, he's going to face hell for all of God's people. He's already told them, I've longed to eat this meal with you. I'm really looking forward to this. They're not looking at Christ. They're looking at one another who's going to get the better seat. They're all self-centered. Where's their love for Christ in his darkest hour? So they're arguing who is the greatest and how does Christ respond? Verses 25 through 27. And these, in, in Luke's gospel, these are the last recorded words to these disciples. They don't get it. They've already been told this several times. And partly because these responses are not the responses of the natural heart. They only make sense to the believer in Christ. Jesus is telling them, you're supposed to have a different view of success. You're supposed to have a different view of greatness. Verse 25 and 26. The kings of the Gentiles, that would be unbelievers, exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Now, this is for all believers, all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the greatest person is not the person at the top. The greatest person in his kingdom is the person who has put themselves at the bottom in order to serve others. And it's completely contrary to the world's way of thinking. He's telling these disciples, you're arguing about who is the greatest, and you're, I'm trying to turn that around inside out. In my kingdom, it's the reverse. An example of this from Harvard University, the MBA students were assigned to develop a strategic plan entitled, quote, what do I hope to achieve in life after graduation? What do you think their number one priority was? Wealth. Their number two priority, notoriety. Number three priority, status. Nobody said anything in their plans about serving people. Jesus is going this night to lay down his life for us and to meet our greatest need, to serve us, to give our his life so that we might be forgiven. And he's telling his disciples, in my kingdom, you follow my example. You are not beyond my example. I'm giving my life for you. You give your life for one another. Christ's disciples are to have a different view of success. Christ's kingdom is one of grace, not earned. Verses 28 through 30. He's saying this, remember, just a few hours before they're all going to deny him and desert him. And yet he tells his disciples, I grant to you the gift of my kingdom, verse 29, the privilege of being at the wedding supper of the Lamb in my kingdom, position of dignity and honor over God's new Israel, verse 30. I'm conferring you a kingdom, just like the Father has conferred on me a kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's a gift to you. It's all of grace. You haven't earned any of this. I'm conferring it to you. And so, since everything you've received is of grace, 
Why are you arguing and bickering who's greater? Know your position. Know that this is all a gift of grace, so freely serve one another. Be perfectly content just to serve one another. Because Christ said his kingdom is one of serving. Verse 26. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. That might be a little curveball there. What does it mean? The greatest among you is to be the youngest. Well, in that culture, the old person was reviewed with the greatest honor. The youngest person had the least honor. So he's saying, in my kingdom, you take the position of least honor. As if you were the youngest in the room, therefore you honor everyone else. He goes on, verse 27, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who serves? I am the one who serves. Who's who's greater? The guest at a five-star restaurant or the waiter filling the water glasses? Who's the greater? Jesus says, you be the one that fills the water glasses to serve and not to be served. I am the one among you as one who serves. He's God incarnate who's come and humbled himself, taking on human flesh and humbled himself even further to go to death, humbled himself even further, Philippians 2, to the death of a cross so that all who put their hope and faith in him will receive full forgiveness and restoration And he says, I've left you an example. This is what my kingdom is all about. Serve one another. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. J.C. Ryle tells us the hero in Christ's army is not the person who has rank and title and dignity. It's the person who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. It's the person who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, and with a hand to help all and a heart to feel for all. It's the person who spends and is spent to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, to raise the poor. This is the truly great person in the eyes of God. Will you take up again this challenge from Christ to serve others, not to be served? That challenge might be first applied in your own home, in your marriage with your children. Can't do this on your own. You come to Christ for his great grace to enable you, and it will be his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we're struck with many things in these familiar verses. We're struck with how they were all sinners at that table, all coveting, all looking at themselves rather than on Christ who was about to die for them. What a reflection of our own hearts, and we are ashamed, and we confess, and we repent of our sins. And such love for Christ, his patience with sinners, how grateful we are that he is our Savior.
how grateful we are that he has laid down his life so that all who trust in him will be saved. And may we take up the challenge in his kingdom, not to be served, but to serve. Oh, our Father, we pray that you will open our eyes to see greater ways in which we may apply these verses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.